Our gospel lesson this morning is found in John chapter 14, reading the second half of the chapter, verses 15 through 30. Listen carefully to God's word. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us, not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Let's pray. And Father, we give thanks for our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom the prince of this world attempted to claim and yet he had no claim upon him. And so our Lord Jesus was raised from the dead and he ascended to your right hand and there he prays for us and he intercedes on our behalf and he asks that you send us a helper. And you have answered your son and you have sent us the spirit of truth to lead and guide us into all truth, to remind us of all the words of Jesus and so we call upon you afresh today, asking, Lord, that you would speak by your spirit, for your servants are here listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As many of you are aware, I share a name with a famous Christian statesman, Chuck Colson. He is Charles W. Colson. No, I have not published any books. No, he is not my father. No, he is not my uncle. I actually had a different nickname when I was born. My dad was a well-known football player in eastern North Carolina. And 
I was born just prior to the new year in which my family would receive a tax deduction. And so a clever journalist in Wadesboro decided it would be cute to call me Touchdown T.D. Colson. That was how I was known. Chuck Colson, of course, was, uh, worked for Richard Nixon in the, uh, in the White House, and he was convicted for his involvement in the Watergate scandal. He became a Christian after his conviction, spent several years in prison, and then reemerged to begin prison fellowship and also wrote several different books, extraordinarily influential. And it just happened to be that one of the very few books that I had upon my shelf next to my bed during my freshman year of college was Chuck Colson's very first published book. It's called Loving God. And about halfway through my freshman year in which I was stumbling and struggling in my Christian faith, wondering what it was all meaning, what it all meant and what I was going to do with this inheritance I had received, it was then that I picked up this book, Loving God, and began to read. And the chapters were a reflection upon John chapter 14 in particular, verses like verse 15, verse 21, and verse 23. And it was there in those pages, through the writing of Chuck Colson, that God awakened my slumbering heart. Years of ingratitude and indifference began to melt away. And it was these words of Jesus in which he repeatedly commands us to love him that were particularly jarring to me. Because Jesus says that we demonstrate our love for God by keeping his commandments and keeping his word. And by the word commandments and, and word, he's not simply referring to his ethical exhortations. It includes that. But it's also just the broader revelation of who Jesus is and what we are to believe and how we are to respond to that. And so to love God is to walk in light of that revelation. Listen to Jesus' words again. If you love me, You will keep my commandments, verse 15. And then in verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And then verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Now it's important to state that this series of commandments can feel incredibly crushing because we are all familiar with our own individual fickleness and our own affections for God. And Jesus says that if we love God, we will keep his commandments and that the Father will then come and love us. We know that we stumble. We know that we're not steadfast in our love for God. And so all of this as we read the second half of John 14 begs that we ask and we answer a very simple question is how do we maintain how do we sustain our love for God two simple things that we'll see in the passage first we must remember the covenant and second we must recall the promise first we must remember the covenant 
As we hear the command to love God by following his commandments, we have to situate this in the proper context. It's really quite easy to misunderstand it. Because Jesus gives this command in the context of a much broader sermon that reaches all the way back to chapter 13. And there in verse 1 of chapter 13, John introduces Jesus' sermon. And these words are critical for understanding everything that Jesus is then going to say. It says, Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That is, he loved them perfectly and fully. And friends, this is the context of Jesus' commandment for us to love. See, it's not the first thing that he says. Jesus doesn't come to us and command us to simply love God. The first word that we hear is of Jesus' prior commitment and love to us. This is the first time actually in the Gospel of John that Jesus turns to speak of our reciprocal love that is to go to the Father. We've been told earlier in the Gospel of John that God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Love begins in God the Father. It's demonstrated in the son's sacrificial death. That there is a loving relationship between the father and the son that then overflows and explodes into reality in which the son comes to give himself that we might be reconciled to God. And it is this love, this love flowing from God that initiates and precedes any commandment for us to love God. And friends, it is critical for us, no matter how simple, no matter how basic, that we keep this order and this priority. As the Apostle John will later summarize in chapter 4 of his short letter, we love because God first loved us. And it's so important for us to keep that order and to keep that priority because the church has always been plagued by two errors. First, there's been a tendency to speak of obedience apart from love. This emphasis effectively mobilizes people in action. We can manipulate people, speaking of obedience and the demand of it. We can weigh heavy upon their conscience. We can get them to do things. We can make our ministries horizontally look impressive. We can look activistic, but it's sub-biblical. And it lacks the life of God in it because it ignores the logic of the gospel. But there's also been an opposite tendency, an alternate one, to speak of love apart from obedience. This emphasis creates an affirming culture, a culture where people are welcomed. But it, too, ignores the logic of the gospel and always ends up devolving into just a sentimentalism. Because you see, friends, our love is reciprocal. 
Our love is secondary. There is a primary love that descends from the heavens, the Father commanding the Son, the Son coming to the earth, offering himself to the Father in a perfect obedience. God initiates in love through his Son, and it is because of all of this loving context, in the context of God's covenantal initiation with us, that we then offer a reciprocal love, paltry and weak as it is, but yet a love that expresses gratitude and thanksgiving, knowing the great undeserving nature of this love and all that God has done for us in his son. And so friends, as we hear the command to love, know that it comes from the first initiation of the God who has loved us. But second, we see that not only do we must, that we must remember God's covenant and his initiating love, but also to sustain this commandment, to actually turn and love God, we also must recall the promise. And this promise is really the full fruition of the passage that we have in verses 16 through 30, where Jesus is discussing the coming and the work of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus explains here how the Spirit is given in order to sustain our love for God. And he is indicating that we are weak and that we are faltering and that we are incapable of fulfilling this commandment apart from the energizing and empowering work of God in us by the Spirit. Augustine, feeling the weight of his own sin, feeling the weight of his own faltering love for God. In the Confessions, he pins this line, God, command what you will, but yet God, give what you command. And friends, while a wonderful rhetorical turn, it's just simply good biblical theology because this is exactly where Jesus takes us. He gives us the command that we are to love. And then in the following verses, he explains that God has given every resource we need to now walk in that command. And so we must recall the promise that Jesus gives here. And there's three unfolding steps to that promise. First, in verses 16 and 17, Jesus promises to ask the Father to send the Spirit. Jesus says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus, he promises to his disciples. He promises to pray for his disciples that God would send another helper. That is, after his death and in his resurrection, glorified then in his humanity in the presence of God, he pledges that he will pray for us that God will send this other helper. A helper is one who empowers us in all of our fickleness, in all of our weakness, in all of our struggles, in all of our strife. He comes to aid, to encourage, and to comfort. But here, what is so critical for us to see is that Jesus the Son promises to ask 
And friends, the father does not deny the obedient son. That there is something efficacious happening for you here. Something that does not involve you. Something that has been done on your behalf. That Jesus prays to the Father on your behalf that you would receive aid, help, support, and encouragement. That you would have the resources of the Holy Spirit at your disposal in order then to walk in this commandment to love and walk in obedience to Jesus. And so friends, in all of our weakness, as we stumble along the way, as we find ourselves limping, we must remember the promise that our Lord Jesus has prayed for us, that he has interceded on our behalf, that the Father will send the Spirit. And he doesn't pray that the Father will send the Spirit just to those really rigorous Christians or to those super Christians or to clergy or to people who are missionaries in foreign nations. He doesn't pray for just an exclusive class of Christians. He prays for you. He prays that the Father would send you his spirit, all those who he gives his life for, in which he paid a ransom, which he laid down his life, he prays for you, that you would have his spirit, the spirit of truth. And so, friends, we must learn to pray this promise back to God in the midst of our weakness. When we find ourselves not inclined to walk in the way of the commandments. It's exactly at that moment that we need to turn to this promise. That yes, God, I feel all of my weakness in this present moment, acknowledging that to him. But Father, your son has prayed for me that you would send the spirit and the spirit has come and that spirit was sent in order to encourage and aid and comfort me and enable me to walk in the way that is pleasing to you. Friends, this is what our Lord Jesus has done, that we would respond in love to God. He has prayed that the Father send the Spirit. But second, Jesus takes another step in his argument in verses 18 through 24. And here he promises to Renew us by the Spirit who would come. The summary of this is found in verse 19. Jesus simply says this, Because I live, you also will live. Jesus has said that he's not going to leave us as orphans. An orphan in the ancient world could be someone who lost one parent. Could also be a disciple who lost a master. And this is most likely what he was referring to. Whatever the case, Jesus explains that he will come and that he will manifest himself to his disciples. He does this, of course, in multiple ways. Jesus returns to his disciples there in history and time after he resurrects. But then he is glorified into the heavenly places. And he says that he will manifest himself to them and he will be in them. And friends, this is referring to the coming of the Spirit. This is the work of the Helper. And the work of the Spirit is very simple. 
The Spirit unites us to the Son. The Son who obediently offered himself to the Father. The Son who loved the Father and abides in perfect communion with him today at his right hand. The Spirit unites us to him. And because he lives, we live. And friends, this is the great difference of what the Christian faith is about. That it's not about learning some spiritual techniques and grounding ourselves in a center and just getting to know ourselves in a deeper way. Even though many of those things may happen, they are a byproduct. That the center and the core of the Christian faith, what the Christian faith is really about is about being united to the Son who has perfect fellowship with the Father. And it is through the Son that we live. It's only in Him that we live. He is the way. He's the truth. He is the life. And the Spirit binds us to Him. And then in the midst of our guilt, we're not condemned because Jesus lives the one without sin, the one in perfect communion with the Father, the one who cancels out our sin, the one in whom we have a righteousness we do not deserve. Yes, we live because he lives. In the midst of our struggles with sin and all the weakness we feel, when we feel the impossibility of the commandments of God, when they feel like so difficult that how in the world am I going to obey we don't despair because our Lord Jesus lives and he's prayed to the Father to send the Spirit and the Spirit unites us to him and all the resources of the Son what is his by nature is now ours by grace and we call and look to him for help it's in the midst of despair that we hope because he lives because our Lord Jesus has conquered all sin and death And that sin and death will not have the last word in our world because he lives, we too will live. And friends, it's the spirit who unites us to all of this heavenly resource that is ours in the Son. And so this is the second thing that Jesus does in advancing his argument is that he renews us by the spirit. This is what we need in order to walk in obedience to the commandments. But finally, in verses 25 through 26, Jesus also promises to instruct us through the Spirit. Verse 26, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. In our ongoing quest to follow and to obey the commandments of our Lord Jesus, Jesus acknowledges that we need continual instruction and that we need continual guidance. He is teaching here that we are not illumined one time by the Spirit. It's not like a clock being wound up and then just set to go throughout the course of the Christian life. But rather that we need the Spirit to continually teach us 
again and again to enlighten our minds, to guide us in the way, to remind us of all that Jesus said and all that Jesus taught and all the truth of the word of God. Calvin captures it beautifully in the Institutes. He writes, nor does scripture teach that our minds are illumined only on one day and that they may thereafter see of themselves. Commenting then on David's request for God's continual illumination, he says, although David had been reborn and had advanced to no mean extent in true godliness, he still confesses that he needs continual direction at every moment. And friends, this is the posture of the Christian. Recognizing the promise is that the Spirit will come and instruct us. And so our posture is then to avail us ourselves of this instruction. And not to think of ourselves simply illumined once, then and there, sometime in history, at our conversion. But yes, illumined there, but then illumined again and again. God teaching us and instructing us, guiding us into all truth. As we stumble and limp along the way, him guiding us and taking us into deeper fellowship with himself. This is the promise that Jesus would pray for the Spirit, that the Spirit would renew us, uniting us to Jesus' resurrected, glorified humanity in which we find life, life against sin and despair, and that the Spirit would also instruct us and teach us. He has given you every resource that you need. Our great struggle in weakness is that we fail to avail ourselves of all the resource that is ours. It's amazing, if you look into the literature each year, the numbers of lottery tickets that are won and never cashed in. Millionaires walking around, perhaps even in the city of Jacksonville, and they don't know it. And friends, this is so often like us incredibly rich, resourceful, everything at our disposal, Jesus has given to us that we would respond to him in loving fellowship because of his great love for us. Avail yourselves of all of these riches, of the spirit, the spirit of truth, who is yours, that Jesus prayed for and that the Father sent that renews us by uniting us to the Son and that teaches, instructs us, and guides us in the way. And find yourselves responding to this great love of God, overflowing and poured out for you in the Son by the Spirit. Let's pray for his help. Father, we recognize all of our faults. We recognize all of our failures, our stumblings, and all the steadfastness that we lack. And we feel the difficulty of the commandment that we are to love you and follow after your commandments and abide in your word. But you've also given us everything that we need Your son has prayed for us. You have renewed us by the spirit to have all the resources of your son. 
and you sent the Spirit to instruct us and teach us. And so God, grant us grace that we will turn and avail ourselves of all of this heavenly resource. Renew us and strengthen us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.